Good to have everyone here to, again this morning as we continue our series in the book of Colossians. As I've mentioned, we see the book of Colossians is in typical Pauline fashion. That is, the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. And as in many of his letters or his epistles, the first half of the book is more theological and dealing with theological or doctrinal issues. And the second part of the book or the letter deals with more practical issues. And so it is we see here in the book of Colossians where the first two chapters dealt with a lot with theological issues and then the last two chapters dealing with practical issues. What we saw is that, first of all, as Paul went into this practical part of his letter, that he wanted to lay the foundation that our sanctification, our sanctification is because of our union with Christ. That the source of our sanctification, the source by which we live for the glory of God in our lives, is because of our union together with Christ. The source of our sanctification is not through following religious rules or, or regulations like do not handle or do not taste or do not touch. But rather, our, our, our way that we glorify God is through our union and being in union with Jesus Christ. So the apostle wanted to lay down the foundation that our, how we live our lives for Christ is not out of a sense of duty, but rather it's out of an act of worship. That we live our lives in worshiping Christ, worshiping God, and not out of a sense of duty, but because of our love for God in Christ. That we're seeking the things which are above, which Christ, where Christ is. We're seeking Christ who is enthroned in heaven, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We're seeking Christ to be able to flood our lives with his grace and his power so that we might live for the glory of God. It's exactly the way Paul says in, in Corinthians, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. The idea is every part of our lives are, is to be an act of worship to God, not a sense of duty. And then we see after Paul laid this foundation, he then gets into our practical life and he tells us how to live for Christ in our homes as husbands and wives and as children and parents. And he tells us how to live our lives for Christ in the workplace, either as employees or employers. And now, in this next section, the Apostle is going to focus our attention on our conduct in Christ. How we are to live our, con our conduct in Christ as we live our lives in the broad world. Not necessarily just at home or at work. And what we're going to see in this section is the Apostle is going to call every believer to unite themselves in Christ... And, and the way that we conduct ourselves in Christ is by having an open communion with God or communication with God through prayer. And we're seeking the Lord to open up doors of opportunity to share the gospel with others. And we are to live our lives open and exposed to an unbelieving world. So our text this morning is found in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Here now... The Word of God. Devote yourself to prayer, keep an alert in it with an act of attitude of thanksgiving. 
praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up for us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. That finishes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now you have to remember the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. And he is writing this letter to the Colossians. And he sends it by the man by, by the name of Tychicus, which we'll look at a little bit more next week. And when the letter arrives in, at the church of Colossae, then they gather the congregation together and they read the letter out loud. Now you have to remember, this is probably the only portion of scripture that the church has. So this letter is precious to them. And as they heard the letter read forth, then they're hanging on every word. Because this is the word of God that was written directly to them. This is a special event. And we see that what would happen in the weeks that would, and months and years would follow is that they would break down the book like we've been doing in the last few weeks, taking each section at a time to really understand God's will for their lives in Christ. So I've always wondered, what if, what, how would I have acted if I was a member of the church of Colossae? And I had heard that the letter had just arrived, and I rushed to the meeting place, and I heard the letter being read. And I have a, a, a thought that what would happen is that I would have been entranced in the first part of the letter. The first couple of chapters where he's dealing with all these theological issues and the heresy and all this. Kind of, I would have been entranced and, and I would have really kind of like maybe even stopped listening to the letter being read. Just trying to, to think through these deep thoughts that the apostle is writing. But then I would have heard it read, husband... Love your wives. And it would have like just smacked me out of this, this, this theological trance that I was in. And say, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 what's this, what's this? And then when I would, would have heard the reader says, and fathers, do not ex exasperate your children. I would have totally been glued in to figure out how in the world am I going to live this life? How am I going to conduct my life in the way that the apostle is telling me to. And so that's the reason why he writes this next section. So that we wouldn't be overwhelmed, but to know that it's a real, it's a real opportunity that God has given to us that we can actually live out the principles of God in our daily lives. He wants you to know that you can live your faith in the broad world not just sequestered within the church or within your own home, but you can live your faith for Christ out in a broad society. Now, once again, the apostle does not focus on rule-keeping righteousness, but rather he focuses in on the issues of the heart. He deals down deep in our hearts so that we can live our lives to the glory of God from the inside out. And again, 
Paul in this text will explain that if we really want to conduct our lives in Christ, then we have to have an open line of communication with God. We have to ask the Lord to open doors where we can share the gospel with others. And we need to seek the Lord's wisdom in our lives and expose ourselves to an unbelieving world. Now the apostle begins this section saying, Devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So here he's saying, if you really want to conduct yourself in Christ, you must have an open line of communication in prayer to God. If you want to live for the glory of God in your marriage, in your family, at your work, within the world, then it starts with having an open line of communication with God in prayer. Now, notice again how the Apostle is teaching us that the source of our sanctification, the source by which we really do live our lives in the world, is through our union with Christ. He says, if you, basically, you guys really want to conduct yourselves in Christ out in the world? The first thing he says, then go to him in prayer. He's drawing us in to where Christ is, seated on high. He says, this is really how you learn to God's will in your life. If you want to be devoted and glorified God in your marriage, in your home, and your job, then seek Christ. Paul stresses the point here by using this word devote. Devote yourself to prayer. And this word devote yourself, well, it means to, to persevere. It means not to faint. Because as we live our lives out in the world, many times we become exhausted. Many times we, we grow weary. Sometimes we lose heart. Am I the only one that feels like that sometimes? And so he's saying, listen, the way you overcome those tendencies, which we all are going to experience, is by having this devotion to prayer. Having this devotion to prayer. As a matter of fact, this word, devote yourself, is used six times in the New Testament in reference to prayer. We see it first used by the followers of Christ after the ascension of Christ into his heavenly throne. And it tells us that they devoted themselves to prayer for ten straight days and nights. And the result of that was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. And then the word is used just one chapter removed in the book of Acts about the attitude of prayer that these first converts that came to the Lord, these 3,000 that came to the Lord on the first day, that that they had this, this, this attitude of prayer that they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And the result of that is that they saw thousands of people come to Christ. And then later on, when you get to Acts chapter 6, you'll see that the apostles asked the congregation to select seven men that they might appoint as deacons in the church to take care of mercy ministry so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and to the word. And then later on, when Paul writes his epistle to the Romans, he tells them directly, devote yourself to prayer. And then when he writes his letter to the the Ephesians, Paul says, pray at all times in the Spirit with all perseverance. And the idea, don't lose heart. Continue to devote yourself in prayer. 
Don't you get it? We see that devotion to prayer is the oxygen that we need to run the race and not lose heart for the glory of God. Amen? It's the way that we get our air to be able to live our lives to the glory of God. But notice, Paul goes on and says, as we're devoted to prayer, we must be alert and have an attitude of thanksgiving. As our church fathers taught us, prayer is the offering up of our desires to God. But many times our desires aren't God's desires for us. So God uses prayer for us to be on alert that sometimes our motives, sometimes our actions aren't really in accordance to God's will for our lives. So we see that God uses prayer to correct our motives and to mold our hearts to be submissive to the will of God. Amen? People have asked me, does prayer change things? And I always respond to them. The number one thing that prayer changes is your heart. It changes your heart to be conformed into the image of Christ. So being alert and our being, as being devoted to prayer and being alert, what we find is this keeps us away from the temptation of pride and selfishness. Did you know the early church, they coined a proper name that really wasn't very popular before the early church? And that proper name was Gregory. How do you think about that, brother? It was Gregory. And the reason why the early church, many of the early church's children were named Gregory is because it comes from the Greek verb used here, which means I am awake, I will remain alert. And so it is, I think what God wants is that is for all of us to have the name Gregory somewhere written upon our hearts. Amen? Now, we have to maintain an open line of communication with God. And to do that, we must take the action to pray. We also must be alert. But then Paul also says that we need to have the attitude of thanksgiving. Of all the writers of Scripture, Paul is the one who gives the most thanks. One could say that Paul was the apostle of thanksgiving. Just listen to a couple of Paul's famous calls to pray with thanksgiving. First one from Philippians. Be anxious for nothing, but in, prayer, but in everything by prayer and supplication, notice, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And again, one of the famous ones from 1 Thessalonians. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. It's God's will for you that you would rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. And in this short book of Colossians that we've been going through, 
Paul calls upon the church of Colossae to give thanks to God the Father, to abound with thanksgiving, to be thankful for Christ, to always give thanks, and then here in our text this morning, to be alert with thanksgiving. Now, in just a few weeks from now, we will celebrate the, our national holiday of Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. But what I've noticed is Thanksgiving is getting squeezed out by Halloween and Christmas. I was actually talking to someone this last Tuesday, and this woman told me that she was going to put up her Christmas tree this weekend. And I, when she said that to me, I was like, no! You got to wait till Thanksgiving. That's what I told you. You have to wait till after Thanksgiving. Nothing goes, no Christmas until after Thanksgiving. You see, I guess what you do, you call me like a holiday traditionalist. It's Halloween, then Thanksgiving, and then Christmas, right? It goes in that order. They don't get mixed up. There's no commingling of the holidays. So I start wondering why it is it that, you know, Thanksgiving is getting squeezed out here. And you might have your view, and it might relate to commercialism, but... I, I, this, is, this is the view I have, is that in, at Halloween, we get candy, and at Christmas, we get presents, but at Thanksgiving, we give thanks. It's the difference between getting and giving. I'm just telling you, as we raised our kids, our kids never had a problem with getting candy. Never had a problem with getting candy. My kids never had a problem with getting presents. As a matter of fact, they would be running down the stairs on, on Christmas morning, waking us up because they wanted the presents. But I'm telling you, every year as we sit at that Thanksgiving table, before we eat the meal, I say, well, before we begin here, I'm just going to go around the table and everything, everyone tell us what you're thankful for. And they're all like, eh, do we have to? And I say, as their father, yes, you have to. As a matter of fact, they still do it now and they're adults. They're grown adults and they're still acting that way. What's the problem? The problem is that we enjoy getting but we have real hesitancy when it comes to giving. So when we pray, when we're devoted to prayer, we want God to do this for us. We want God to do that for us. We want God, we want God. And he says, no, 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 stop. Have an attitude. Make sure that you're alert. Making sure your motives are right. And one way that you can do that is always have an attitude of thanksgiving, as someone has said in the past, an attitude of gratitude. The apostle is telling us that if we really want to glorify God in our lives, we have to be devoted to prayer, be on alert, and maintain this attitude of thanksgiving no matter what. We have to give thanks. Why? Because our Heavenly Father says you have to. <laughs> so, what is the thing in your life, or the things in your life, that you can give thanks to God for right now. And also, what is the thing or the things in your life 
that is the most difficult for you to give thanks to God for. Because God wants us to give thanks to him for the easy things and for the things we enjoy. He also wants us to give thanks to him for the hard things and the difficult things in our lives. Amen? Amen. Paul continues his practical instruction in how to conduct our lives in Christ by telling us that we need to seek the Lord for open doors of opportunity to speak the gospel. You know what's really good about speaking the gospel is when you speak the gospel to others, it reminds you of the gospel yourself. And the more you don't speak the gospel to other people, the more you forget the gospel yourself. Paul writes, praying at all times for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Here we see that Paul considered his incarceration for preaching the gospel as an opportunity to speak the gospel, to speak the mystery of Christ to those around him. I guess you could say the apostle knew that he had a captive audience. That is a, such a good joke. I can't believe it. Is a, a way I'm, not, I'm delivering it? I mean, the first service didn't laugh either. It's, maybe it's the way I... I let me just, start, let me just let's start back here. Paul considered his incarceration for preaching the gospel as an opportunity to speak forth the gospel to those who are around him. I guess you could think that he thought he had a captive audience. <laughs> Get it? Incarceration? If you've got to explain it, it's not funny anymore. Did you know that Paul, during Paul's ministry... During his ministry, that he served five and a half to six years in prison. During his years of ministry, five and a half to six years was he was incarcerated. Now that's a long period of time. And Paul could have sat for five and a half to six years complaining to God that he was in prison and would have blown the opportunity to share the gospel with this captive audience. So Paul's attitude is, listen, you really want to conduct your lives for the glory of God in Christ? Then seek the Lord for open opportunities to share the gospel with others. Now, Paul had seen God use his imprisonment in great ways. The most notable is recorded in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas are put into the inter-prison in Philippi, and it tells us that they were singing and praying and giving thanks to the Lord, and around midnight a great earthquake came and shook that, that prison cells, and all the cell doors came unlocked. And there was a one jailer there who had heard Paul and Silas and their proclamation of the gospel, and when he saw this great miracle, he... Paul was able to lead him, and not only him, but also his entire household to the Lord. Paul was familiar with God using this, these prison cell as opportunity to preach the gospel. Another notable one, which we'll talk about a little bit next week, was a man that Paul actually met, met in a prison cell in Rome, a, a fellow prisoner, Omicinus, 
And this guy was a runaway slave. And Paul actually knew his master, Philemon, and he met him back in the Colossae area. And so Paul met this runaway slave in in the prison cell in Rome, was able to lead him to Christ, and then was able to negotiate a reconciliation between this runaway slave and his former master, Philemon, uh, because now they were both brothers in Christ. Actually, this runaway slave was, was, was one of the ones who delivered the letter of Colossians to the Colossi church. What we see here is that God used this opportunity. Paul could have squandered it, but instead he used it to preach the gospel to this runaway slave. And you, you know that we, one of the New Testament books is the book of Philemon where Paul is giving instructions to this master to receive back this brother because now he's in Christ. My point is, is Paul expected God to use his incarceration as an opportunity to open up doors to preach the mysteries of Christ to the world. And Paul expected God to create these these types of wonders over and over again to really share the gospel with others. And he decided he wasn't going to squander these five and a half years, but he's going to use them for the glory of God. Now, let's talk about us. Isn't it sad that the Apostle Paul considered his incarceration as an opportunity to speak the gospel when we don't seek the Lord at all to open up doors of opportunity to share the word of God in our daily lives with others, and we're free people. We're free. There's no restrictions on us. We squander so many opportunities that God has placed right in front of us. I've shared with you the statistics before. The number one reason, outstanding, the number one reason, the number one way that a person comes to Christ overarching is that there was a friend or a family member or a work associate, a classmate that shared the gospel with them. God put these people in their lives and those people would, were not going to squander the opportunity. Well, what about your family members? What about your work associates? What about your friends? What about your classmates? What about the people you see and converse with every day? Are you seeking the Lord to open up a door of opportunity to share the gospel with them? Are you really asking the Lord, Lord, open up the opportunity that I might share the the gospel with this person or that person in my life? I don't know. I, I, I think many times today Christians are intimidated by the world. Maybe it's because of the PC culture we live in today, a culture where we know that everything is accepted except Christianity and biblical truths. <laughs> and so we want to be accepted so much and we want to be liked so much that we don't want anybody to know that we're one of those weird Christian folk. And therefore, we just let these opportunities go away. We don't shine the light of the gospel into the darkness of the world. And I love the way the apostle asked for prayer here in this text when he writes, 
that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. You know, it's just, it's not the same way every time. Sometimes, you know, you need to be direct. But sometimes you need to be gentle. Sometimes you need to quote a Bible verse. But sometimes you just need to share your own personal experience. It's not the same way every time. And you need to be seeking the Lord not only to open up the door of opportunity, but you need to seek the Lord in how you ought to speak. Lord, how, can I, how should I speak the gospel to this person? Lead me and show me how I might be the most effective in doing that. So the idea that we need to be ready. As the Apostle Peter tells us, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, but do it with gentleness and reverence. So the question is, who is in your life right now that you're going to start seeking the Lord to open up the door of opportunity that you might share the gospel with that person? Who is it? That you're going to start asking the Lord, Lord, open the opportunity for me with this person or that person or this person or that person. And then ask the Lord, okay, Lord, how ought do I speak? How should I present the gospel when you open up that door? You all still here with me? But sharing the gospel to an unbelieving world is not just in words, but it's also in deeds. You know the saying, just don't talk the talk, but walk the walk, right? And so Paul writes here, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of opportunities. He goes on to say, let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Now, Paul writes, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders. Outsiders is a term that the New Testament uses to denote someone who's outside of the Christian faith. Or if you would, an unbeliever. And for many unbelievers, our lives speak louder than our words. They hear you, but they don't see you. They hear you, but they don't see you. Living the gospel. So Paul says, conduct yourself with wisdom. Now, the idea here is that the, in the majority of our relationship with outsiders, they're people you already know. They're people that's already in your life. It's not like you're going to run out and find a whole new group of these people. No, when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, when you step out your front door, those people are right there. They're the people that God has placed in your life already. So it's not like we have to go on some evangelism you know, mission trip or something. <laughs> we just live our lives. We conduct ourselves with, with wisdom towards outsiders. And I guess what Paul is talking about here is, is, is what, what I could call like maybe a, a premeditated evangelism. That you're thinking about sharing the gospel with this person long before you're able to share the gospel with this person. It's a premeditated apologetic. You're thinking about how to answer this person's questions long before the conversation ever happens of talking about the things that they're confused about. You see, the fact is, is you know what people are going through at work. 
You know what people are going through in your family. You talk about it. You know what they're going through. And you know what the Word of God says about those difficulties they're going through. So you seek the Lord to give you the wisdom to be able to speak the Word of God to the difficulties that they're experiencing because they've probably never heard what the Bible has to say about the things that they're going through in their lives. And let me just, let me just share with you a few examples where the, the, the Scripture actually tells us how to behave towards outsiders. You ready for this? The number one way that we're to behave towards outsiders, Paul tells the Corinthians, is by not casting judgment against unbelievers. The number one way we conduct ourselves with wisdom towards outsiders is by not judging them. Basically, Paul expects unbelievers to think, talk, and act like unbelievers. That's crazy, right? As Christians, we shouldn't be shocked when an unbeliever thinks, talks, and acts like an unbeliever. My older son has two bulldogs. And you know what those dogs act like? Bulldogs. You know why? Because that's their nature. My younger son has two golden retrievers. You know what those dogs act like? Golden retrievers. You know why? Because that's their nature. And I don't sit there judging the golden retriever and say, why can't you be like the, pit, the, the bulldog? And I, I, that's crazy. But we sit around judging the world instead of thinking of how we can share the gospel with them. My point is Christians shouldn't be surprised or shocked because unbelievers act by, like unbelievers. Christians should... Never judge outsiders. But instead, they should seek wisdom from God and how they can respond towards those thoughts, words, and actions. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul calls for Christians to behave properly towards outsiders. And then in Romans, he gives us a little list of what he, what he means. What he's saying is like, listen, when you hang out with unbelievers, and you all know it's cool to hang out with unbelievers, right? You know, Jesus did that. And Paul says, when you hang out with unbelievers, that's cool. But don't get involved in their carousing and in their drunkenness and their sensuality and in their strife and their jealousy. The idea is here you are in the break room at work and this unbelieving work associate basically starts slandering this other person. And, you know, you need to seek God for wisdom how you can speak into that and basically say, listen, you know, that's not, that's not the way you should be handling this by slandering and putting that person down. However God leads you to do it, I don't know. The Holy Spirit's better at it than I am. And, and also, the Bible tells us as believers to have a good reputation with those outside the church. You see, basically, as we conduct ourselves with wisdom, we should make the most of every opportunity that God gives us. That's what Paul says here, right? And this phrase, make the most 
of make most make the most of the opportunity. It's a market term. It's a market term that basically means to buy out or to purchase completely. So here's the idea. The other day I was at Costco, right? And I was, I, was, I, was, I was doing my shopping at Costco, and I look at the laundry detergent that we use was on sale. The jug was on sale for $4 off. And I'm thinking, what? A non-perishable item that I know that I'm eventually going to use, and I can save 4 bucks. This is a win-win. And so I reach down to get and it says limit two, right? Limit two. Do you know how many jugs of detergent I bought? Two. But why? Because it would have been silly for me to buy one jug of a non-perishable item and only save $4 when I can buy two jugs and save $8, right? And what Paul is saying here, it's absolutely silly. For you not to use every opportunity completely to buy out the maximum value when it comes to sharing the gospel with other people. Hi, thanks for that. I really appreciate it. I'll give you the $20 later. You're doing really good. God has given us opportunities to share our lives with unbelievers, and so we should really use it to the maximum limit for the glory of God. As the Lord gives us these opportunities, Paul says, Now remember, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned as it though with salt. So we should seek God's, God's wisdom to share the Word of God, but the Word of God should always be pleasant, should always be attractive, should always be charming, with a dash of zest. To, and this dash of zest, this season with salt, is to be able to invoke thought in the other person's mind, in the unbeliever's mind, where that person wants to have further conversations about what you said. That you're seasoning it with salt, so that person says, you know, I want to revisit that with, it, with him. I never really heard that like that before. We need to seek the Lord for what I call divine dialogues. And sometimes we can go too far and it turns people off. And Paul says, no, no, no. We always have grace and season with a little bit of salt that will invoke a person coming back and saying, you know, you said something to me the other day and I really want to know more about what you mean by that. So, brothers and sisters, do the people in your life know that you're a Christian? Do the people in your life even know what it means to be a Christian? And do the people, the, the outsiders or unbelievers in your life, do they know that you don't participate in certain things? Not because you're judging them, but you don't participate in certain things because of your relationship and union with Christ. You don't participate in certain things out of an act of worship. I'm not judging you, bro. I just don't do that kind of stuff because I'm a Christian. Are you seeking divine dialogue with unbelievers that God has already placed in your life? Listen, the Lord has deposited a treasure trove of his word into your life. And he doesn't want you to hoard it. 
He wants you to share it with others. Well, next week we'll finish Paul's letter to the Colossians where he recognizes fellow workers in Christ. So, in essence, the text that we just looked at this morning was Paul's last attempt to encourage the Christians at Colossae to maintain their focus on Christ by seeking the Lord to work in their lives from the inside out. This is Paul's last words that he would write directly to the apostle to the, the churches the church at Colossae. And because of that, we need to really take him serious. And what does Paul say? He says, be people of prayer, always checking your motives, always have an attitude of thanksgiving. He's saying, you need to seek the Lord for open doors to share the gospel. And you need to seek the Lord for wisdom to know how to speak as you ought. Seek the Lord's wisdom to know how to live your life as you ought. So with that in mind, my challenge for you as we conclude this morning is the same as apostles. I can't get any better than Apostle Paul. Let's be a people of prayer. Seeking the Lord for open doors to share the gospel. And to seek the Lord for wisdom so that we might live our lives exposed to a fallen world both in word and deed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and thank you for this practical instruction that you led your servant to write, not only for the church of Colossae, but for us today as we seek to live our lives in a fallen world. And Lord, pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would make us a people of prayer with the, with the right motives and with the right attitude of thanksgiving. Lord, make us a people that really do look for you to open doors for us to share the gospel and help us to be a people that when those doors are open we're ready to share in a way that's full of grace, seasoned with salt. Lord, give us a divine expectation that you're going to use us for your glory as we conduct our lives in Christ in a fallen world. And we pray these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.